Okay, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be looking at um, these first a few verses again this morning. Well, when I say again, we never looked at them last week, but uh, we'll try and give them a fair airing this week. First five verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it says this, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favour of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Trust the Lord will add a blessing to his word this morning. So often as I inferred briefly last week, our financial giving can be viewed as a negative obligation for the Christian life. Sad to say. Financial giving, Sunday by Sunday, can easily slip into a, well, I suppose I better give something, or kind of thinking. And we all have ideas and even reservations about what should guide us and govern us and motivate us in our giving, as we've just done in the last few minutes. So we need to ask the question, what does the New Testament instruct us about our giving? That's a pretty simple upfront question, right? Well, here in these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, we have the answers. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you will have all that you need to know to gain a biblical theology, an understanding on how the Lord wants our your financial giving to take place. Now, when we talk about giving, I do realise that giving can take shape in many ways and forms. You can give your resources, you can give your time, you can give your talents. But here in these two chapters, the Spirit of God specifically focuses on the giving of money. And so we'll follow the text, right? We'll keep it that way, specifically referring to money. And by the way, if you're a visitor here or haven't heard messages like this before, we at NCC don't labour on this subject and kind of bring it up every time the coffers get a bit low, so to speak, like some churches do. You may have had experience with that. This is one of the strengths, as I've referred to often before, one of the strengths of verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture. And that whatever comes up in the text, we will deal with it honestly and openly before the Lord. Right? And so let us all be expository listeners this morning. And so as we launch into this topic, it might seem strange for those who have been tracking with us through this book. 
It might seem strange for Paul to to introduce the seemingly new subject right here. Because it is a new subject. Even the first word indicates that, where he says, now. In other words, okay, shift of emphasis, now. And then he launches into this seemingly new subject. And so we can ask the question, as good expositors, why is that? Well, let's back up a little for some context to give the answer to this question. And as you know, we have learned that between the Corinthian church and Paul, there has been this estrangement between them. And this weighed heavily on the Apostle Paul's heart because after all, remember, he was the one who planted that church. He went to Corinth and the Lord says, I have much people for you in this city. And so Paul laboured there for 18 months and a church was born. And he taught them and he exposited the text with them and he nurtured them and he loved them. And now this estrangement had happened and false teachers, as you know, had come amongst them and had turned their heart away from the Apostle Paul as God's messenger to them and they, and they called to question his veracity, his honesty, etc., etc., as we have looked into that. But now that had all been turned about because the Corinthians had repented and seen the wrongness of their actions. Isn't that wonderful? How good it is to see the wrongness of our actions, our thoughts and our ideas and repent before the Lord. Well, upon this repentance, as we have looked at in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul's heart kind of exploded with joy. The last verse of chapter 7 tells us that, that I rejoice in everything. I have confidence in you. So it was upon this now amicable relationship that had been restored that Paul could now approach this delicate subject. Keep in mind that this is not the first time the Apostle Paul had raised the giving of money. You realise that, of course. Remember when we went through 1 Corinthians, right at the last chapter, chapter 16, Paul brought this up. He made clear to them that his intention was, even though things came in and interfered, this is where everything kind of turned to custard because the, the, uh, the Corinthians accused them, wow, you said that you're going to visit us, but then you don't, and what's going on here? Um, so the Apostle Paul made clear to them that it was his intention to visit them, and when he was going to visit them, he would collect the offering, the gift, the monetary gift, and then take it on to Jerusalem. So this has been brought up before. And they were even ready to do this. They desired to do it. And Paul brings this up in this chapter. Have a look at, just go down the chapter a bit and see verses 10 and 11. It says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, that is to collect and give money, but also a desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. So the desire had been there in the Corinthians to give money to the Lord's work and namely for the saints back in Jerusalem who were suffering. But now a year had passed. You know, if desires don't turn into actuality, they're a waste of time. I'm talking about good desires. And that's kind of what happened with the Corinthians. A year had passed. 
And so Paul reintroduces this need of giving to them. The time is ripe for them to pick up where Paul left them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You see, these people, this church, needed to have a right understanding of Christian giving and be proactive in this grace of God ministry because that's exactly what it is. And we all need to understand it like this. So here was Paul, he was on his third missionary journey, holding this pot of cash collected from the churches in Macedonia, that's kind of north of where Corinth is, in the, in the land of Greece, and that would be namely Berea and Thessalonica uh, and um, Philippi. He was holding this pot of cash collected, and probably also from Galatia, and as of yet, nothing from the Corinthians. Nothing from the Corinthians. But apparently, just to kind of end the story here, or sub-story, the Corinthians were finally obedient to this reminder of the Apostle. And they did give to this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Romans chapter 15, verse 25 and 25, verse 25 to 28 indicates that. Anyway, how does Paul handle this reminder appeal? We all need reminders, don't we? How does he handle it? Well, first he gives believers then and for all time biblical principles for Christian giving. That's what he does in these first five verses. Before we launch into that, at the outset, we need to understand that money in and of itself is amoral. Amoral. That is, money is a neutral commodity with no evil, or no good, as it were, in and of itself. You understand that? But what can happen, though, is that the use of money can be used for evil or good purposes. In other words, how we use our money ends up being a spiritual barometer that reflects our internal morality. So money in and of itself is amoral. That means it's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. But how we use it becomes a spiritual barometer who we are internally. And that's what Jesus said when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Remember that? In Luke twelve thirty four. So although the scripture doesn't denigrate the possession of money, it does command this. It commands that the believer is not to love it. And warns that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. So we come to the question, if we're not to love it, if it's not to be our goal to hoard up what this money stuff can buy, How are we to give? How are we to give it to the Lord in a righteous manner? That's the question. That's an important question because as the heart, as some of us are talking this morning, the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. And might I say, that even refers to us, folks. 
I know that my heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. And that means we can, I can, even deceitfully, in some way or other, give wrongfully. Maybe even justify a wrong way of giving. You see, just as there is a difference, a little bit like uh, repentance, just as there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, as we had back in chapter 7, remember that? There's a, such a thing as godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And, and uh, there's also a major difference between mere generosity and biblical giving. Many people are generous. The world can be very generous. Unsaved, non-Christian people can be very generous and they can give. It's, that's mere philanthropy. Giving, that's just man to man. But giving biblically should come from the heart of God through men to men. Right? That's how it is. So the purposes and incentives are profoundly different and we need to understand that. And it's from this first section in verses 1 to 5 that, that Paul, what he does is, rather than just give us a chronological, theological, this is what you're to do, this is what you're not to do, this is what you're to do, this is what you're not to do, he gives us a living example. I love living examples, right? He gives us a living example, or a working model, if you like, of what biblical living, biblical giving should look like. And he uses this biblical example, this living example of giving, um, for the Corinthians and us today, and he uses the example of the Macedonian churches. And as I said before, if you remember, Corinth is down here, and you have Greece up there, and you have Philippi, Berea, or Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica above it. And um, these were the churches that were obviously proactive in their giving already. And so the first fundamental aspect for biblical giving is that our giving should demonstrate the grace of God. We have this in verse 1. We touched briefly on this last week. Now, for those of you who heard here, when I made mention of the work of God and the opportunity to serve the Lord by giving in Zambia and amongst the people of Zambia, your hearts exploded with grace. You gave abundantly, willingly, and I know sacrificially whereby I was able to take a good lump of cash over to buy Bibles and bikes for Zambian people, which we saw on slides last week. And this is exactly what the Macedonian churches did when they heard the need of the poor saints in Jerusalem. Their giving was a demonstration of God's grace and action in their lives. The word grace is key here, by the way mentioned seven times in this chapter and three in the next. And see, the very essence of grace, that grace word, it's all about giving. It's, it is to give. But giving with a codicil kind of added to it, and that is to give abundantly, wait for it, here it is, to people you do not know and to give with no expectation of anything in return. You got that? That's grace. Not necessarily all the time to people, but here it was a case of the people whom they did not know without any expectation at all 
of anything in return. That's grace. Jesus said in Luke 6 and 33, If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. See, we have the idea of grace. It's not only to those whom you know and those whom you feel might have some payback. Not that at all. And so who were these Macedonian believers? Just to have a look at their history. You know, mostly they were anti-Semitic. That is, they were against the Jews. Before they were saved, that's what they were. Acts 16, verse 20, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 bears that out. However, here they were now, they were born again. In other words, they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Their lives had taken on a radical change. They accepted now and loved their unknown in Christ Jewish brethren. How awesome is that, Amy? That's how it should be, shouldn't it? Race, colour, culture should be no barrier to the born-again believer. And here were these once idol-worshipping anti-Semitics demonstrating God's grace toward their unknown brothers and sisters in the Lord through this incredible monetary gift. You see, folks, God's grace is on display when we allow his grace to flow. His grace is displayed when we are moved to give. I'm not saying that's the only way his grace is displayed, but here, according to the text, this is how and one way and a very important way of his grace being displayed. Just as Jesus was moved to give his life a ransom for us when we were enslaved to sin and enemies of God and deserving total banishment from his presence and eternal hell, that's what we were. Jesus was moved by love and grace to save us. He gave himself for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. See, folks, when I took that monetary gift over to Zambia a few weeks back, I thank God for his grace that had been displayed through you all. My dear people, it's only the grace of God that we have experienced through faith that motivates such sacrificial giving. May we continue as a church, as individuals, may we continue to show off, can I say, to show off God's grace in this way. But we also see that our biblical model for giving is to be giving that is generous despite the circumstances. This is a tough one, isn't it? A real tough one. We see this in verse 2. And this is so important because what often happens is we allow too often our circumstances to govern our giving. Wow, I've had no overtime for weeks now. The interest rates have gone up on my loan. The power and gas bill have just jumped. Sorry, Lord, you're going to have to have less. I can't give this month or I can't give this week. You know you know how it goes. Circumstances have a habit of governing our giving. 
But what about our model here that Paul, by the Spirit of God, puts before us all? With the Macedonians, it's exactly the opposite. You see that? Note the words Paul uses here to describe their desperate situation. Great ordeal of affliction. This has the idea that their everyday circumstances were extreme and the pressure of persecution that they were experiencing was severely intense and that was upon them day by day by day. Paul gives us a little snippet of the start of this that would have escalated of how they suffered in Acts 17 verses 5 to 8. You remember the occasion when the, uh, when the apostle took the gospel there and they dragged Jason out of his house and other believers out of their homes and they charged them with causing dissension. You see, folks, in other words, their road of everyday living was not an easy one. They were up against it all, day after day. We don't know anything too much about that, do we? Paul also said of the churches in First Thessalonians, and you, this is what he said to the Thessalonian church, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was not easy. There was a cost. And I'm not only talking about a, uh, a cost whereby they would have to be doing things different. This would have been a financial cost as well. For instance, if you were employed by a uh, maybe a Jewish businessman or whatever and he heard that you become a Christian, guess where you went? And so there was heaps of jobless Christians around. And money was scarce. But on top of this great ordeal brought about by persecution, we also see that he says that there was something else. He says that they were in deep poverty. See that? Deep poverty. Another, this word also means extremely deep. That's how it can be accurately translated. Or in modern vernacular, if you want to use modern language, the Macedonians were at rock bottom. They were stony broke. They were in the pits financially. All their resources, their savings, had been used up or had been ravaged by the dictates of Roman rule at the time. Job losses had escalated since coming to Christ. The larder was all but empty. The oil barrel was running dry. All their circumstances took a heavy toll on their finances. Hence they were in deep poverty. But look at the response to the need of others. This just blows my mind. It it challenges me to the very core. It was not one of, I just can't afford to give. Or it was not one of, me first and others second. It was one of generous liberality despite the circumstances. That's what it was. They rose above their circumstances and they would not allow their situations in any way to stifle their ability to display and show off the grace of God in giving. Though the amount that they put in the offering bag may have been limited, that was okay because of their poverty. Their poverty did not diminish their love for those who were in need. And so what did they do? 
They still gave. They gave something. Folks, the hallmark of a sincere Christian is that they give despite their circumstances or their situation. Because no matter what the circumstances, our devotion and love for Christ and his people cannot be hampered. Amen? These people took the new commandment, as we know it, in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, they took it seriously. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so they knew how Christ had loved them, and so they transferred that grace act of God to their own lives, to what others in need. And they gave. We also see that they gave their offering with what? With an abundance of joy. Imagine that. With an abundance of joy. In other words, despite the slog and toil of circumstances, to give to these folk it was not a burden. It was not out of mere obligation of, I suppose I better give something kind of thing. No way. It was not about buying some brownie points from God because we feel that we have not been on par this week. It was nothing about that. It was not even out of fear of divine punishment. Those were none of the reasons why they gave. To give for the Macedonians, it, they, they gave with an overflowing joy. They gave gladly, they gave freely, they gave joyfully and generously, knowing that what? Knowing that God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9.7 Their joy transcended their pain and suffering and circumstances. They rejoiced in the reality of, of laying up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. That's what they rejoiced in. Matthew 6.20 They rejoiced that greater is the blessing to the giver than to the receiver. We often say that, don't we? It's more blessed to give than to receive. They took that to new heights and believed it with all their hearts whereby they acted upon it. They rejoiced in the fact that God will give back to the willing giver a greater treasure, Luke 6 and verse 38. That's why we should be the, that's another reason why we should be the greatest giver. Knowing that God will always give back more. I don't know how that's going to look like, whether it's going to be here or in eternity or what, but it doesn't matter. God will give and has promised to give greater, more than we can ever give. You want to put it in accountancy terms, I think giving is a good investment, right? My dear people, may it be that we do not allow our circumstances to govern and impede our giving to the Lord. May we give generously and joyfully, knowing that it is God's grace working through us. We also see another aspect of biblical giving then, that it, is, it should be a voluntarily, a voluntary and sacrificial. We see this in verses 3 and 4. We often have this misunderstanding that the Old Testament tithing system is our mandate for giving. It's not our mandate for giving, by the way. We don't give a tithe here, tithe meaning a tenth. We're not mandated, we're not dictated by the Old Testament covenant or anything in there that we're to give a tenth. Matter of fact, the Bible nowhere teaches that a percentage or even a certain amount is the full and final requirement of God's people. It is to be voluntary. You hear that? 
In other words, God requires a free will offering and he always has required a free will offering, even in the Old Testament economy. Remember when Abraham went off and he made an, went off to save his nephew and, and he came back and, uh, and there was um, the, the priest of Salem there to meet him and he made an offering? Okay, that was a free will offering. He didn't have to, but he, he, he gave to God. All the Old Testament patriarchs, there was a free will offering. And, and, and remember, remember when Moses, when they gave the instructions to build the tabernacle, it wasn't the tithe offering or the tithing that did that. It was a free will offering. God has always required a free will offering. And so the people gave of their own accord. As a matter of fact, they gave so much that, that it said, whoa, that's enough. Free will offering. Free will offerings have always and always are God's way to give. You see, the tithing system, by the way, just for your interest, was a taxing system. It's a bit like, if you want to look at our taxing system, I think you'd probably pay about 23% or something like that. Some will even be a bit more if we're on higher incomes, much to our uh, amazement. And so Israel had an economy to look after. It had a government to run. It had a religious side of their government to run. And so a taxing system was ushered in to actually pay for that and accommodate. Matter of fact, and you even think about tithing when they're, you know, the, the, a tithe of a crop, the, the first off, offering of the crop of their yield was to go to all. That wasn't even theirs to give. That belonged to the Lord in the first place. So they can't consider that tithe to be a tithe. You can't give to the Lord of what you have that doesn't even belong to you. You're just caring for it. And so, so as we go through that, we must understand that the tithing system in the Old Testament was a taxing system similar to what we have today. And so when Jesus came to the New Testament, he falls into line. And when he's asked to pay the tax, what does he go? He doesn't go in his pocket. He actually tells Peter, go and catch a fish and pull the money out so you can pay the tax, remember? So it was a taxing system in the tithing system. Some people like to use it. Well, yes, it's a guide. Well, okay, that's okay. But, but don't misunderstand that the tithe of the Old Testament is our mandate for giving because it's not. Free will offerings have always been God's desire from his people. And here it is in our text here. It, what does it say? It was according to the ability and of their own accord that the Macedonians gave. No specific amount is mentioned. No percentage is mentioned. And so our giving, according to this model, which is a true model, is to be according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. We have this in verse 12 of the same chapter. What this really discounts is that 10%, if we had a, a mandated figure, 10% or maybe 20%, well, that would be very sacrificial to some. But to others it would be like nickels and dimes and spare change in the pocket. So it would not be sacrificial giving, would it? So forget about the tithing system as being our mandate. The Apostle Paul has already said, has said this in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. Of their own accord, what does that mean? It means they chose... They elected the amount. That's what it means, of their own accord. You want to have a look at, for free will here? For those free willers? Okay, here's a place we can be free will. We, have, we, have, we are asked of our own free will to elect 
to choose to nominate how much we give and what we give. But they were not stingy, we see, in their self-imposed giving either. You see that? They weren't stingy. The Macedonians' giving, how is it described here? Beyond their ability. You see that? Beyond their ability. So that means it was giving that was sacrificial. They went beyond the call of duty. They went beyond even what Paul expected them to give. And it seems that Paul was, was not expecting them to give owing to their dire situation. He knew about their situation personally. And so he was expecting a gift. But we see the response to maybe his protestations. They begged for the privilege of participating in this good work. Imagine that. Please allow us to give something to our unknown Beloved brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, we long to do that. You see, to them, this was not a once a week obligation or some self-imposed contract that they had placed upon themselves. It was a joyous privilege. They so wanted to participate in the support of the saints in Jerusalem. These people believed in the promise of God that he would supply all their needs. They really believed that. Philippians 4 verse 19. You see, they refused to worry about their dire situation and, and they gladly placed themselves in all their circumstances and all that they were going through and all their hardship. They gladly placed themselves in deeper dependence upon the Lord. How sad it is. Sometimes, well, when we get into a bit of strife, we want to pull ourselves back from that one. We want to be more self-dependent. We want to have things in control. We want to be able to, to, to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. But when it came to giving, the Macedonians, no. There was a, a selfless abandonment to the Lord and his ways. And so they sacrificially gave. They gave voluntarily and sacrificially. And their selfless abandonment was seen in their giving. How we need to take stock and learn from this. And then we finally for today, that is, see that uh, our giving should be an act of worship. We see this in verse 5. How easy it is to become emotionally engaged over the quantity of gift that is given. Each Sunday, for administrative purposes, two people add the money in these offering bags up so that it can be banked. Then to me, and also cited in our bulletin, for your interest, that figure from the prior Sunday is quoted and written. One of the, one of the first places you go to the bulletin, I'll guarantee it. <laughs> it's easily become emotionally engaged with that. You know, and as we look at that figure, it can be woeful or can be inspiring, right? As we look at the quantity of the offering that was near last week, well, Paul, the Apostle Paul also greatly impressed with the quantity of the gift from Macedonians. Yes, he was fully pumped about that. And he was no doubt elated about that. But what exceeded his expectations immensely was not the quantity of the gift, but it was the spiritual quality of the Macedonians. You got that? 
And so what does that look like? What does spiritual quality look like? It says here, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, they gave themselves to the Lord and also they gave themselves to the apostle and his team who were the envoy taking this money back to Jerusalem. They entrusted themselves to these sent ones of God by giving themselves to the Lord. In other words, what this tells us is that God does not consider our gift as a priority. He wants the giver first, then the gift. That's what this verse tells us. So no matter how much you put in that offering bag this morning or any other morning, God doesn't necessarily want the gift. He wants the giver. God does not want our wealth without our hearts and minds and wills, folks. He doesn't. We read a verse this morning, some of us guys in theology class, that not redeemed with silver and blood, with, with uh, gold, silver and precious stones, but by the blood of Christ. He wants us first. And so the Macedonians got this absolutely right. They understood that the first priority was to give themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord and then their financial gifts through the church. They got this exactly right. To give money as we do is an act of worship, absolutely. It should be. And oftentimes that is quoted here. We come to worship and we worship the Lord in many different ways and one of the ways is through our giving. But it is not the supreme act of worship, just like singing songs is not the supreme act of worship or even praying is not the supreme act of worship or attending church is not the supreme act of worship. The supreme act of worship is giving yourself to the Lord like the Macedonians teach us and like Paul spoke of, you'll remember, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, yourselves, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Your spiritual worship. Macedonians got this down. You see, folks, once a believer has yielded himself completely to the Lord, then he is acceptable to God as an offerer of gifts to him. Pretty serious, that isn't it? Pretty serious. May the outward giving of our monies, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, be a true demonstration of our inward giving of ourselves to the Lord. That's my prayer. I trust it's yours as well. Our giving should demonstrate the grace of God, our giving should be generous despite the circumstances. And our giving should be an act of worship. Trust God will add a blessing to his word this morning.